Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. Then I return and consider all the oppression that's done under the sun, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is no power. There is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praised the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil that is undone under the sun. So what if Solomon was raised just to write this book. What if this guy's lived 80 years and that entire journey was so that he could write this book so we could read it today? And just that thought of it, it's a unique look. We're in the middle of Ecclesiastes. We're looking at a philosophical approach to faith in God without using any revelation from God to get there, just using what we can see and what we can understand. So if this is true, that Solomon's kind of observed these things, and you wonder what horrors he saw in verses 1 through 3. What would cause him to write that? And we look at world history, we think of the horrors that we've seen. In fact, this is one of the things that often people struggle with before they come to a belief in God. How do you deal with all the evil that's actually in the world? And he's not doing it from a place of theological belief. He's doing it from a, sec- from a secular perspective where you still have to look at the evil in the world and understand that it's there. So I don't think we disagree with people that aren't believers on this point. Yes, there's lots of evil in the world. So taking heed to Solomon's voice, what is life without God or how can we come to a wise life without God or with every, just the stuff that's under the sun? So the Bible is mostly historical, poetic. There's, there's uh, prophetic books. There's correspondence with the epistles. Uh, there's witness accounts with the Gospels. And then you get this weird, this and the book of Job are the two books in the Bible that are kind of these philosophy books that are thrown in here. And they're in here, and I think they draw in a certain kind of person that is nagged by some of these questions. And that's not to besmirch other kinds of people, but God wrote a Bible that could come at different personality types and meet them where they're at. And I just think that's wonderful. Would I tell people who are just interested in learning about the Lord to start with Ecclesiastes? Heck no, not a chance. Would I tell some people to start with Ecclesiastes? Yeah, I would. Especially those people that get kind of lost in their own head, right? They're so buried in philosophy, they can't see their their head when the light's on, right? And there's a mirror in front. I don't, that was a really, I'm tired. (laughs) Chapter one was all about our knowledge and entertainment. And, you know, all these things we do in life don't have a lot of lasting value, including fixing up your home and having hobbies and it, just this realization, those things don't have a lot of long-term value. They, they decay and they rust. and they, they, When we're gone, they're gone. Chapter 2, all this work and gain is kind of also vain because it doesn't go with you when you die. right? And then chapter 3, we could just say like fatalism is in chapter 3, que sera, sera. You know, whatever happens, happens. Um, but chapter 3 brought up this issue that that doesn't seem to work for people when they're honest. Like there's something, there's something eternal in our heart. There's something that's wrong with death. 
and we don't like death. Why is it we don't like death? Why is it we're so fearful of it? Um, now we're testing this conclusion that we should just eat and work. Uh, so these kinds of uh, these pieces that come here, and then you get to this other problem that gets into that that attitude of I'm just going to eat food and drink beverages and do the work that I need to do to be comfortable, and I'm just going to live life that way. And then you get to chapter four, and he just throws a wrench into that machine. Like, okay, that's a worldview, but what about evil? What about the fact that we look at a world and we see things that are just plain wrong? And how do we deal with that? Like, isn't it a little selfish to just ignore the problems of the world and just live your happy life? And, you know, unless we're Smurfs, that's, there's a problem in that attitude, right? So the word then is there. Verse 1 is a conclusion to those things we read about in chapter 3. Then I returned. So there's just kind of this idea of, like, I got to come to this. Also, the word return is there, which means this is what you would call a regression argument. Then I returned and considered. What's he returning to? He's returning to this idea of, I'm just going to live and eat and die. And that's my life choice. So these regression arguments are that they're, he's going to come back to these ideas from a slightly different perspective, and he's going to dig into it. So we have a question, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. What does it profit a man to have all, in all his labor? That's the question of Ecclesiastes. What's the profit of life? What do we gain? And then we get this answer in, in, in chapter 3, verse 22. I perceive that nothing's better than a man to rejoice in his own works, for that's his heritage, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Just do whatever it takes to make you happy, right? And then, so we're turning to those ideas and we're considering this thing of starting to fight oppression. This is another way to think about life under the sun. There are these types of people that I would call them strident. They're strident people. And what they do is they fight causes. And when one cause gets old, they jump to another cause. And if they can march in the street with other strident people, they will do that. And it makes them happy. And it's a way to get through life that makes you really happy. And you find that these strident people, they can get well into their 60s and still you know, have you know, Grateful Dead things hanging on their walls and things. You know. it, these, that's a way to live that gives yourself meaning. And stridency is better than kind of a selfish lifestyle in this regard. You're actually living for other people, which is a step closer to fulfillment, right? I hope that makes sense. If I fight for a cause, then I'm doing something that's important. I just have to believe the cause is important. And if the cause is important, that can give me some sense of meaning outside of just eating and drinking and being merry and dying. Right? So there's this idea of stridency. All the oppression interrupts that enjoyment that people have. We, and th that's the reality of the world. So how can we rejoice and be happy when we're being oppressed or when we see oppression? The tears of the oppressed, the worst always goes to the poorest people. And that has in every culture and every society throughout human existence. Like you'd think humans would figure out how to just get food to everybody. But we, we haven't figured that out in at least 10,000 years of recorded human history. It just hasn't happened. So this idea that nothing's changed, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the rich constantly find new ways to oppress the people that work for them by paying them less and less and taking more and more for themselves. So there's no comforter in this. In fact, the phrase no comforter, um, when it comes to looking at the poor, gets used multiple times. Verse 1, they have no comforter. The end of verse 1, they have no comforter. It gets emphasized or repeated, and we know that means there's an emphasis. There's nothing to comfort these people. So how can I live a life and just be happy when other people are suffering? Right? How can I, you know, how can I enjoy my meal when there's people that don't have one? 
And, and so there's a few choices people make. You can be strident and try to do something about it. You can be oblivious to it and not know that it's happening. Or you can harden your heart and, and, and not think about it as much as you can. Or maybe there's another option to look at. So there's no comforter in this. This is talking about every major form of government. Really, this isn't like commentary on a particular government format. Every major government in world history has had people that live there that don't get food. And at some point, they don't get the basic needs met, or at the very least, they're not living at the standard of living of everybody else in that society. So this would be the source thinking be be behind every protest movement. And some protest movements are ones that you agree with, and I'm sure there's protest movements that people in this room don't agree with. But this is the source thinking behind it, is I'm going to do something about what I see that is wrong. It's better to protest and fix things for the next generation than to just live my own life and die and not have anything get fixed or, or get any better. So one wonders where this desire for comfort ever comes from. Why do they think justice is so important? And again, this is an under the sun kind of like question for people as you're getting to know people and you're trying to draw them into these kinds of discussions. Why is justice so important? Where did that come from? And why is it that humans are concerned with justice, but we don't seem to see that other beasts of the field are worried about justice? So what has been sown into our hearts that says it's not okay to oppress people? And where does that come from? So there's this power. Um, the, the problem with this, and I think this is the cycle part, is that it says power, comma, but. So people can fight and get power, but then they become the new oppressors. And it creates this cycle. Like the French Revolution is a great example of this. Right? And Anna Karenina. Right? is that the poor people take over, but then we find that the poor people are just as oppressive as the rich people were. It doesn't make a difference. So there's one thing that we endure in the natural world, and there's this struggle here. It's another thing to see that humans keep doing it to themselves, and we keep creating governments that impose some limitation on this, and the better the government is, the more you see that people get lifted up from this situation, the more mercy there is in the society. So we definitely see that. We don't need a revelation from God to recognize that. So in a work situation, you're either the boss, where you get filled with stress and anxiety because you're running things, you're responsible, or you're the worker, where you get complaints and toil, right? So there's no great relationship to that. I remember when Grant and Katie were getting their first jobs, and it was like striking them how much time and work it was and how little the paycheck was. And it's like, well, yes, you've enslaved yourself to people that are paying you, for what they think you're worth in that position. And Grant's enslaved himself to me currently, but, you know, and at this level, that's just kind of how it is. So you hope you have a good boss that's merciful and shares the wealth with you, but that's not the case for everyone in a society. So what we're left with then are, is strident people, verse 1, some pessimism about it, verses 2 and 3, envy in verse 4, or pacifism in verses 5 and 6. So we'll go on to verse 2. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. This is kind of the conclusion of, like, life sucks. And... That's Ecclesiastes so far. Verse 3, yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. This is pessimism. Like, it, this is the wise alternative to naive and foolish optimism. Being a naive and foolish optimistic person, this is a tough thing to understand, like, for me to, like, get. But this idea of, like, I'm going to be wise and sober-minded, and anybody that's happy in life, I'm, they just don't know what, they don't know how evil the world is. Right? So, you, so the response to being naive is to grow up and become pessimistic. 
So hedonism essentially leads to pessimism. You live it up and then you realize there's no up. And there's nothing that sustains on that side of things. So this is the, this becomes something that worldwide has always had, the caste system in India, uh, oppression of women in the, in the Middle East, uh, sex trafficking in the modern, in the first, the, the, like the, the wealthy nations of this world, industrial wage oppression, or frankly the oppression of sitting in a cubicle for eight hours a day. That is not normal human behavior. Yet we endure it all the time. Or we face up, we have other people enduring it. The face of all this stuff, we can logically just give up on all of it and just wait for our next TV show. Right? Let's just wait for like must-see Thursdays or whatever. And we can just be walking dead people and get through our life and realize life is horrible and there's nothing good about it. So this is extremely depressing. Verse 4, again I saw that for all the toil of every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity in grasping for the wind. So Kierkegaard called this leveling. In this workforce of zombies where everybody does the same, go ahead and try to like achieve. Try to do better than every other cubicle person. And Kierkegaard would describe this phenomena as that you'd be poking your head up against the crowd. And what happens is the crowd itself will level that head off. Right? We don't want this one person to be achieving because then we all have to work that hard. Our boss might think that that's how we work around here. But we don't work like that around here. We are toiling, and we're going to toil at this pace. So that'll, that's generally part of this reality of life that he talks about. People envy, envying you, let's say you succeed, you become the, the object of envy of the other people around you. Or, or you get called you know, a brown noser or some other derogatory term. You're sucking up to the boss, things like that. So you have this idea of leveling. So leveling's the suppression of individuality to a point where the individual's uniqueness becomes non-existent and nothing meaningful in their existence can be affirmed. That's leveling according to Kierkegaard. Who do these people think they are? At a maximum, it's like the stillness of death where one can hear one's own heartbeat um, into, into which nothing can penetrate, in which everything sinks, it is powerless. One person can head a rebellion, but one person cannot head this leveling process. For that would make him a leader, and he would, be, uh, he would avoid being leveled. Each individual can, in his little circle, participate in leveling, but it is an abstract process, and leveling is an abstraction, conquering individuality from this present age, Soren Kierkegaard. You with me on all that? Maybe? Solomon says it better. I saw that for, for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. Stop it. Stop being good at what you do. Why did Cain kill Abel? Jealousy. Abel was doing it right, if we remember. And Cain got upset about that. Without God, strife and work leads to all kinds of evil. Oppression is one of them. Envy is another one. And this is all vanity because people think they're more important than they are. Then you get to verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Let's look at homelessness for a moment. Isn't it a logical thing if work is just toil and oppression or envy? Why don't I just fold my hands and like, it says eat my own flesh. I think that that's a, an image for the idea of I'm just going to, whatever resources I have, I'm just going to like use. Right? So I'm just going to live without work and therefore I won't buy things and I won't do things and I'll just, just me and my flesh. So why not? 
What's wrong with that idea? I can live in, a, well, I don't even need a car. I can live with my bicycle under the bridge and hang out, and I never have to work another day in my life, and I never have to be oppressed, and nobody's going to be envious of my tent under the bridge. I would just live at a lower standard of living. So there's this idea. Frankly, it's one of the, it's, it's fairly known in, in college circles. We have people that try this way of life. This is what I would call laziness, right? I'm just not going to do anything. I give up. The world wouldn't be disappointing unless we come at the world with expectations. It's the expectations that cause the problem. So if I have no expectations of this world, I'm never disappointed by this world, right? We see this a lot in middle school classrooms with the kids that don't even try. They're just, they don't, why try? I'm just going to be disappointed. I'm just going to do it wrong. So you see this idea, and it, and it breeds kind of a laziness when we do this. So there's actually times when you, can, you can't teach people to fish because they don't want to fish. And there's actually people like that. The Jewish people had a rule called gleaning. So part of the law under Jewish life is that you're supposed to leave the corners of your crops unharvested. So if people wanted to, they could go to the crop yard and they could glean their own products. Yet they still had homeless people when we see Jesus in the first century. Right? Even though they could go out and work and get their own field. The disciples were caught gleaning in a field. So there's this idea that that was for travelers. It was for people who didn't have money right away. Um, and it was just kind of this way to leave something for the poor. Um, and people that wanted to work could find themselves a household where they could get a job. Look at the story of Ruth. So if you were a hard worker and you went out early and stayed late, you could make a way for yourself and find a good employer or even a good husband in her case. So there's this idea of handouts as a way to deal with oppression, yet Solomon seems to say that there's a fool that folds their hands, that there are people that are in that position because they choose to be there, and that's not everybody. Please don't hear me saying that. There's lots of different reasons for homelessness. One of those reasons for homelessness is this idea that people choose to be homeless. So how do we, what do we do with that? God even allowed in the law for some people, instead of giving a sacrifice of a lamb or a, a cow, they could give a sacrifice of a pigeon, something you'd find on the street. So if you'd do the work to go get the pigeon, you'd have something to offer to God. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It, what matters is how much you're willing to go out and do it. So you got these three attitudes, and they, they seem to be getting worse. There's strident in verse 1, pessimism in verse 2 and 3, envy in verse 4, and now we get laziness or passivism in verse 5 and 6. And Solomon's just going through these different approaches to life. Verse 7, then we see the word then. It's transitioning to a new, new idea. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. I, you keep seeing people that are living because of what they see in the mirror. They're just living for themselves in all of these different manifestations. And so we're still under the sun. Um, and one asks the question, what about relationships not at work? So if the workplace is oppressive, and I can choose to not be part of it, or, you know, or I can be protesting things. And what about the people we don't work with? If we live for our work, then we see lots of inequity, but we don't see inequity, not maybe necessarily with our friends and with our family. Like, so is there anything there? I like that God doesn't pull back, like he's laying out the truth when it comes to just there's these types of people out there. And this is where people tend to argue in Ecclesiastes. Well, that's not true about that, or that's not true. And there's not always a precedent work. Sometimes there's this. I think Solomon would admit that's the exception to the rule. From his experience and what he's seen, these are just the patterns that tend to emerge in these situations. 
So we're created to live in a spiritual world with God, yet we're manifested in a physical world where these, these physical problems of wealth and resources, um, and, and we have to kind of keep wrestling with that. So those are just the work things. Uh, they give themselves owner, over to it. Uh, and then in verse 8, we get what we call a loner, right? Somebody who's just like, okay, I'm just not going to deal with people. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This is also vanity, and it's a grave misfortune, right? So these are folks that maybe get into their elder years, right? And they don't really have other people they're responsible for. So they don't, have a, they don't really have to work as hard. You know, they're just kind of taking care of themselves. But then there's this idea that they don't necessarily have people around them. And Solomon just notes that's kind of a misfortune. It's kind of lonely. So those that are alone without companion, neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to their labors in verse 8. I think we're talking like Scrooge McDuck, right? These are the people that they just work and work and work and work and they don't have time for family or friends, right? Like utter workaholics. There's no end to their labors. It's all they do. And they live that way. So living for yourself, touch base with people now and then, it's kind of a misfortune because you're not really enjoying life with people you know, right? So then you get to nine where Solomon draws like a conclusion here under the sun. And again, all of these points are things where when it comes to wisdom, you can, we can kind of go, well, I don't know about this, about that. Solomon's simply drawing the conclusion in verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And there's a truth in that. Like we can see that under the sun if I work with somebody, we tend to have more productivity. And part of that is just keeping each other accountable. Part of that, when he's talking about work, he's talking about herding or agriculture, like those are the two main occupations for people in Solomon's world. When you're working with other people, you just get more return on your work. So there's a certain benefit when you put people in work crews. Um, so let's cont contrast that with being alone. You can be alone or you can be with others and you get some benefit to your work. Benefit number one is it's more efficient. Truth is you don't necessarily need Jesus' example to see that companionship has benefits. Benefit number two, verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who, who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. So if you're on the mountain trails and you get alone and you don't have anybody that you're hiking with and you twist an ankle, you're out of luck. A bear's going to eat you. But if you have other people, they can help pick you up and do it. So benefit number two is that there's support or that you have each other's back. You can cover each other. Again, this is something that anybody can see. This is not something you need to understand because of God's revelation. So this isn't, and also I don't think this is just about like a marriage. It's easy to read that verse 10 is just a marriage verse. I think this is about having lifetime friends, people you go through life with, people you know, uh, that when things get tough, you have people around you that will support you or back you up help provide for you when you need things. And, and this fellowship idea is just a powerful one. So sticking to under the sun, uh, this is efficient and it's supporting. And then verse 11, again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though no one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Sound argument for fellowship, right? This is why we hang out with people. These are Prima facie reasons that we hang out with people. Number one, it's more efficient. Number two, there's support and we cover each other. Number three, it's safer and warmer. 
Like, it's just more cozy. And I don't think lie down together has anything to do with sexuality here. We're talking about the workplace. When shepherds would sleep at night in the Middle East and it started to get to be cold, they actually would bundle together and it wasn't like a sexual thing. It was just literally to keep warm. So they would take their robes, they became their blankets. That's a kind of a one-layer blanket when the temperatures get pretty cold. So snuggling is <laughs> another reason to hang out with other people. And again, this is, just, this is just Solomon being honest. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So if you live for yourself, you end up alone. If you live for others, that's not quickly broken. Like Then you have something to live for. They say a lot of times when, when you get couples that have had their 60, 70th reunion, and one of them dies, it's often that the other one dies fairly quickly. That as if they've lived their whole life together, that there's something about just being together that helps with the rhythm of life and it helps with longevity. You, you stay warmer. I think it's because you get cold at night. Maybe. I don't know. So simple companionship and relationships becomes the next idea of how people live. And there are lots of people that don't live for the Lord that live for the relationships in their lives. They live for their family. They live for the people around them. Why do they do that? Because there are benefits that are part of how we were created. This is just how humans are made. It's better to be with other humans. First, Second Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? I think when Solomon's talking about this, he would agree with, these are two people that are lying down together. There's an equality to them. They're co-workers. They're at the same place. If you're, if, you're ne if you're hanging out with people that aren't necessarily seeking after God, that can be a major problem because we're wired for companionship. Solomon was warned if he took multiple wives that they would lead him into idolatry, and they did. And part of that is because we tend to become like the people we hang out with. So when you, if people think that I'm a geek and I made bad pop culture references and they're still hanging out, well, that's kind of on them at that point. So here's the conclusion. Solomon is old. He's finding out, he's lived a long life, and he's taken wisdom and he's handing it off to us like we're his grandkids. Don't waste your life. And at the very least, relationships have some benefits, right? There's better that he's going to get to, but here's a conclusion. All the wisdom in the world is kind of a speck or a flash when compared to God's wisdom. So, But these wisdom, these little pieces, at best have a friend that you live your life with. And I think even better may it be your spouse. But at best, find one other person that you just spend your life with. It helps take the negatives out of life. You can have the worst day in the world, call up that best friend, and that worst, worst day just got the rough edges sanded off. If they're a good friend, if there's an equal yoking there, you need each other, you rely on each other, there's something awesome about that. Type brothers and sisters, what a blessing to have that all the way through your life. And to be on that same path together. So Solomon's writing an autobiographical piece here. And I think at some level, he concludes all of these things. And he envies to some extent what we read so far in last chapter. I think he kind of envies people that just, they trust in God. They eat food. They work their lives. And that's wonderful. And I think he, he respects that. There's something awesome about people that just serve the Lord and they don't worry about it. But I think in this chapter we see that there's a kind of regard in verses 9 through 12 for people that just live life with each other and together. And there's something powerful about that. And he's not arguing from a church perspective. He's arguing from a very under-the-sun perspective, like there's some huge benefits. So now he sees what a wasted life looks like. 
He's kind of alone. He's got thousands of wives, but he, he doesn't have a friend. Uh, Solomon say that a good friend is like one in a thousand, right? The, the, the kinds of people that would be quality friends and, and goodness. And I think about our little Bible study, like we are rich people. Like there are a lot of people walking this planet that do not have the friendships that we have here today. People that would not walk a mile with you, much less 10, right? Just what a blessing that is. Verse 13, better a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. And I think he's talking about himself. Like, he's not the person to be envied. Better to be poor and wise. Verse 14. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. And, all I, saw, and, and I saw all the living who walk under the sun, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. So Solomon, uh, people can, you can also read verses 13 through 15 as him talking about his dad, that David is the old and foolish king. And, some, and there's like that idea of he comes out of prison to be king. Uh, that's an odd turn of phrase if that's the case um, because David was in caves and he ran from people, but was he ever in prison? And, and I'm just trying to think, I don't think he was ever in prison. You could argue, though, that Solomon, being one of many of David's sons, had rivals for the kingship that he had to deal with. So there would be times when Bathsheba would hide Solomon away so he wasn't out in the open because if you got a rival person for the kingship, they tend to kill their rivals. So he would be, he would be secluded and hidden away. So that's a, a one way to read verse 14. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. And he's just that idea also of this idea. So um, second son here is not birth order. It's a way the Hebrews would say like the second son, the not preferred one. So both David would be a second son, even though he was, what, seventh? Is that the right number? Somebody help. Okay. And Solomon would be second son because he wasn't the first person picked for that kingship. So Solomon knows that his dad uh, was in a situation like that, but he could also be talking about yourself. Even to be a king, for he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born in his kingdom. I saw all the living walk in his son, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. Even if you become king as the first youth, you still got the second youth on your heels. So maybe life, maybe he's looking at life and thinking all these best ways to live life. And one of them, you know, like he's looked at people who are working class, but now he's looking at people that are actually in royalty. Maybe it's better to be royal. Verse 16, there was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterwards will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and grasping for the wing. Even if you're the king of the universe, super king of the universe or queen of the universe you're still what comes after you is still like you can't control any of that so even when you're the king you got people nipping at your heels and there's this idea of nobody's going to celebrate you in a few generations high hopes when you get new kings but then the kingship isn't all that either you still die even if you're a king and future generations may or may not know your name. So being a leader doesn't solve this crisis of life. People still strive. Laws still get broken. Life still becomes vain. The nice part about being a king is you have money, and even money becomes an issue, which we'll get into in the next chapter. Solomon then is facing up to this inevitable coming disaster to his own kingdom. I think Solomon's looking at his sons, realizing they're absolute nincompoops. And he's realizing that his sons have no ability to lead because they've been spoiled rotten. So he's built up this empire of Israel 
like no one had ever thought possible. A bunch of herders and Egyptian slaves make a country for themselves. He builds up a train network like the world's never seen, and he realizes that his sons are absolutely going to destroy everything when he's gone. None of it matters anything. And for those years he thought what he was doing was important, that was vanity and grasping for the wind, and it's surely vanity and grasping for the wind. It just doesn't matter. 1 Kings 11.10, Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Solomon was told by God that his kingdom would be given away, and this was not, this was, it would be a mess. So it's not like Solomon's got a gut feeling on this one. He was told by God that this is going to be a mess. Solomon worked so hard, but because he abandoned God in certain areas of life, he's there. So Jeroboam is a servant who's going to rule over the ten tribes of Israel. Uh, and he didn't rejoice in David or Solomon. Jeroboam kind of hated them both. So he rose up in power and he starts kind of this revolt. So the northern kingdom gets led by somebody who is actually a servant. So that prophecy came true. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He leads Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdom. So one generation after the Solomon's empire has been built, it gets shattered in two. Kind of similar to Alexander the Great's story, actually. Alexander the Great built a massive empire and then gave it to his subordinates and they kind of broke it up into parts and the Romans took it over part by part. So Solomon's well aware that Jeroboam will rise. He's going to lead the northern kingdom. Uh, surely this is vanity. I think he's just too old to care. <laughs> like he's just, it's all vanity. So next there's going to be an exploration of well, extreme wealth in the kingship. It has to be better if you're king, right? Maybe just money solves these problems. And maybe if you're a good like philanthropic king, maybe that makes things better. But now we're almost getting into hypotheticals, right? He's dealt with 99% of humanity, and now he's dealing with those people that get to be in king or queen positions. Like, that's all that's really left. So he's going to wrestle with that. But we are done for tonight, I think. Yes? We're all still awake, which is amazing. So after 10 miles of hiking, you guys are troopers. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Solomon, for the wisdom that he gives. Lord, let us not be deceived thinking that more of this or more of that would make our lives any better. Lord, at least there's a truth there that we can recognize, Lord, and it takes very little faith to recognize things under the sun. Lord, help us to um, not turn away from or blind ourselves to evil that's on this planet. Lord, that may we in our lives and in our circle of friends and the people we know, Lord, may we be people that step in and stop that. Lord, that we can be people of justice and peace and mercy and grace. Lord, that we can encourage people to work and build their lives. And Lord, we can give people a home where they can have friendship, where two or three are gathered. Lord, we just pray that you can help us to see you. And Lord, not focus on the tragedies of this life. Uh, Ecclesiastes can be either really depressing or it can be absolutely joyful to read knowing that we have a hope that passes understanding any kind of worldly wisdom doesn't really get the joy that we have in our hearts so lord fill us with that joy fill us with a wonderful evening here at the uh at the glacier campground and lord we just pray you're, you you bless us and may your holy spirit be constantly working amongst us in jesus name amen
you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.